Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, it's Vikram from Quantlayer and thanks for listening to our 11th podcast. On this episode, Faisan and I discuss our experience at the Boston New Technology FinTech and Blockchain Group event, where we got to present our alerting platform to a couple hundred attendees. We discuss some of the other crypto projects we saw, including Button Wallet, which is a Telegram bot that lets users buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies right in Telegram. We also discuss P2P lending and go through our first mailbag, which covers answers to questions you all have, from crypto market questions to how to say no to a client. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking, joined by Fizan, known as the Wizard. Hello. Hey Fizan, how's it going? Pretty good. You? Good. Good. We just drove back from Boston a couple couple days ago. Yeah, we were up there for the uh, the uh, Boston New Technology Group had a conference specifically focused on fintech and cryptocurrencies. So, thought that was a great opportunity to get in front of some some people up there. Yeah, Chris Requena at Boston New Technology Group. He, he's the one who runs it. There's been 92 of these. I don't. They're not weekly. I think they're monthly. So he's been running it for quite a while now. We'll, yeah. we'll link to him to the meetup and his Twitter and Boston New Tech's Twitter in the in the show notes. But thought it'd be cool to recap the people we met, you know, the companies that we that presented and the kinds of people that we ended up talking to. So, yeah, it was a uh, interesting event because they had some networking beforehand, then the uh, companies presented and then some networking after. And because the Boston New Technologies group is like more broadly like tech focused, there were a lot of people that are not like their interest in the crypto space, but new to it. And then there were a lot of people that are really into the crypto space. It was a good mix of people. Yeah, I was. it was cool to see that there was very, most of the companies who presented were actually blockchain and crypto related. That was interesting. When I saw that it was a fintech a meetup, I had assumed like maybe it would be like 10, 20%, but I think it was closer to like three quarters. Yeah. Yeah, the first company that we saw was, uh, and we'll try to get a lot of these uh, a lot of these people on the podcast too, because they're doing some pretty interesting stuff. The the first one was uh, Indico, uh, run by David Levine, and what they are doing is this basically a security token platform for investors and issuers. So if you are a startup or if you have some kind of idea that you're trying to raise capital for, you could go through them, and they I think they will help you. Uh, find investors too. Like they have some kind of registry or Rolodex of investors who would invest in a project. And I guess they're trying to act as a, as a platform, like a marketplace between those two. Yeah. So what, yeah, what I gathered was David had a good amount of experience, both doing uh, like reg CF raises with the crowdfunding and also the series, is it uh reg a plus that people raise as well for security tokens Mm-hmm. And what it sounds like he's trying to do is make the process very seamless for companies to do both of those, depending on the stage they're at, on their platform. And then they have quite a large pool of investors that can participate in as accredited or non-accredited investors, depending on the type of raise it is. 
Because I guess that process can be pretty expensive and time consuming if you're going into it blind. Yeah, I think uh, what they're doing is kind of similar to some of these other kind of platforms we've seen and heard about like Harvest and uh, maybe Polymath. Some of those guys are trying to do it a bit more programmatically, I think. But uh, his platform seemed very friendly towards towards issuers. The crowdfunding, the CF filing, what was that? That was a little over a million that a yeah, issuer 1.07 million, I think. And from what I remember talking to someone else, I think there's a cap on what you can raise per per investor. You're capped at like seven fifty, seven hundred fifty, or a thousand dollars, or something like that. So you can raise from a, a small amount of money from a large pool of people. Yep. So yeah, that was pretty interesting. We we talked to him for a little while. We should definitely have him on the podcast. He seems like an interesting guy. This is like his fourth. Uh, he called. He yeah. said he was a serial entrepreneur. It was like his fourth project that he was doing. Yeah, and all in different, all in different fields. That's always interesting. Okay, so the second one you saw was uh, its name was Button Blockchain Technologies, and they have this button wallet. The person presenting was Alexander Safanov. He's the CEO there. So this one was pretty cool. It was a multi-currency wallet and exchange in Telegram. So he demoed the platform. And basically what it looked like, if I can describe this, is so you enter Telegram. While in Telegram, you can buy and sell Bitcoin through an exchange. I think they've hooked up one exchange so far. And you can also do uh, P2P transfers on Telegram as well. And, you know, one of the big selling points of this thing, I think, are that so many of the crypto community are on Telegram as it is, that it's very easy to to get people onto this platform. So do you remember what the numbers were? Like they had 4,000 users, 7,000 users, uh, something like that? They had, yeah, so they had launched with 7,000 users. Their thesis was, let's just build something where the users already are. And what they essentially, like the wallet functionality is completely free. So I think they said they supported seven currencies, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a multi-currency wallet built right within Telegram. And that's sort of where your friends or other people that are you're transacting with are also on Telegram. So it's a pretty easy place to like find them and transfer money. And the wallet functionality was free. And then it's hooked up to one exchange right now. And they they take a you know a small commission plus the exchange fees for the buying and selling and the exchange and like financial transaction services. But yeah, I think they launched with 7,000 users and they're in the process of raising money to grow to, I think they have a target of 100,000 users, but growing pretty quickly. It's it's an interesting business uh, because if you're an exchange and they really start building up volume, there's a lot of incentive for you to lock them in and not allow other exchanges into their platform. So they, I can see them doing pretty well. Yeah, and UX is pretty nice since you, if you're in Telegram, you're you know you're a hardcore, pretty active crypto trader. You you're going to be checking your Telegram app pretty regularly. Yeah, and it makes sense that uh, that's a nice spot to be able to trade in. I do wonder about the quality of the bid ask spreads that they end up showing users. Like, yeah. I wonder how current that is. Because with trading, like if you have a trading platform, these bid ask change very quickly. Yeah. So of course you would never do like high frequency or, or even medium frequency type of trades on something like this. But yeah. if you just want to buy some Bitcoin, you want to buy some Ethereum around the price that it's currently trading at, it's probably yeah. a pretty solid bet. Yeah. And I think also being able to use it as your like, you know, like almost a Venmo alternative, like you're on Telegram, all your friends are already on Telegram. It's very easy to add the wallet 
um, and transfer. And the you know Telegram bot API is relatively standardized. So if you're used to other Telegram bot applications, you'll pick this one up pretty quickly. So it's it's almost like getting like a crypto Venmo without having to set up a separate app. Yeah, so that's the, a good the, way to the, a good way to that, describe that's it. where I saw a lot of the value. And then the exchange piece is how they make their money slash potentially is a great way for them to to exit eventually. Yeah, who would buy this? And not users, but like what kind of company would would acquire this? I mean, on their one of their slides, they actually said exchanges because you think that they have seven thousand users now. Let's say they hit their target of a hundred thousand users. So PayPal bought Venmo, even though Venmo wasn't even making any money because you need that like user base that's active in doing these transactions. And it's the same idea. If you have all these captive users that are all, you know, within this network, sending money to each other or using this wallet across seven currencies, like if you're the one exchange that they have, you don't want them to add a second exchange or a third exchange and start competing on price. Uh, You want to like lock in those users. So I think it's probably really compelling for an exchange if they actually get those user numbers yep. can show the growth. Yeah. And uh, if I was going to ask you just like off the cuff, technically, how difficult was this application to implement? The UX pretty straightforward because you, you essentially don't like, don't have to build a lot of the front end you'd normally have to build. Same thing for the authentication layer. They say like the part I don't understand is the custody like are they actually just storing your stuff encrypted within the telegram base database like using or like your local you know telegram database using telegram's encryption or do they do anything on their own it sounded like they just leverage the stuff telegram already gives you mm-hmm. and if that's the case then they there's you can probably get up and running and a lot of functionality in place having avoided a lot of development you'd have to do if you're building like a web application yep but I'd have to investigate a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, this is sure. just off the cuff type of question. Yeah, I wonder as far as the exchange goes. Presumably, you have to have a account with the exchange that they work with in order to trade on it. Yeah, I would assume so. So Telegram is, at, you know, I think Telegram recently betaed or launched like Telegram Passport, which is their like identity and authentication service. So I I can envision a scenario where you're you know, you log into these exchanges or have your accounts on these exchanges via your Telegram passport. And if that becomes the case, then I think it'll propel these guys quite a bit. Yep. If Telegram becomes the medium of both communication and like uh, identification. Yep. Just out of curiosity, I pulled out my uh, iPhone and I pulled up the App Store and then just put in um, Button Wallet. I don't, it doesn't seem like it's available just yet, but. Um, uh, it's it's not an it's not an app. It's uh, you actually go to like a US underscore at US underscore button wallet. It's actually a Telegram bot. Oh, okay. I think so I misunderstood yeah, the whole UX. Yeah, yeah. So it's not an app. It's it's literally a, a bot within Telegram. Okay. So you communicate with the bot to do everything, and so it's storing all of your stuff and whatnot encrypted within the Telegram application. So that's the mag- like genius of it. Yeah. So they don't have to build an app. Was it at button underscore wallet? Uh, so I think it was at uh, US underscore button underscore wallet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's um, one. I see that there. There's also just yeah. at button wallet bot. It's yeah. all it's all in Russian. I don't know what this says, but it says it. Yeah, it looks like it uses the Waves platform. St Sasha. Yeah, I remember that was this was the guy yeah. who presented. Yeah, I'm almost certain it's the one he, he definitely showed the one in the presentation that was US underscore. So I think that might be the English language version. Okay, gotcha. 
Yeah, we got to check this one out. Seems really interesting. It's cool yeah. to see new ex- new UXs like this. Yeah. Because our assumption coming from the world of web is like, I just made this assumption too, which is incorrect, that like either it should be an app or like a web app or something like that. But the UX itself could be on top of the Telegram platform. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just bots. There's no, you're not building an app. You're not having to do anything. You, you know, there's probably running some sort of server or even a serverless architecture yep. that it does all the bot interactions and the rest is just handled between uh, Telegram and the exchange. Yep. We got to figure out what we can do with Telegram too. Yeah. We're already doing some stuff. That That's very true. Uh, so Adjoint was the third company that we saw presenting uh, was from marketing. Her name is Catherine Hochran. Uh, so this is what they how they describe themselves empowers enterprises to achieve new levels of efficiency and control by delivering blockchain technology built for the financial industry. Yeah. So what that means is I don't know. Honestly, this was the one I understood the least. Yeah. The two things that I took away was they've written their own um, non-Turing complete smart contract language called FCL, and they wanted they did that intentionally because it's you know. It's easier to keep secure. And they're essentially, these are not public blockchains. They're private permissioned blockchains within enterprise. And the one example they gave is they were using it for like captive insurers somehow to manage something. But that's sort of as much as I was able to gather. It seemed like they were able to replace a lot of like paperwork and process with this uh, blockchain for some insurance purpose and also for like intercompany loans or lending. Yeah. And that's, that, that was sort of the uh, depth of my understanding on this one. Yeah. So I don't have it much to add to it either. I know that they mentioned they won a bunch of awards. They're a part of like some, a couple accelerators. Their CTO is a former uh, CTO of Elson, which is one of these, um, basically this platform that based out of Boston that would help uh, funds backtest data. So I think he he left there to join here or he left another company to join here. So I didn't really understand what they did exactly. But if one of you knows, please uh you know, tweet it at us. Yeah, cuz we want to we'll, we want to find out. Yeah. So the fourth company was Fast Draft. Uh so they describe themselves as combines transparency and intuitive field tools for banks and real estate professionals. Uh, the guy, the CEO there, the founder, Bill Ferraro, is the one presenting that one. And if I understand this one, this one was for doing appraisals? Yeah, this was this was a non-crypto project, but it was fintech. It was for doing appraisals. Ferraro, come, is a, Ferraro comes from the uh, real estate development world. And... I guess he had seen a number of inefficiencies in terms of how appraisers work. This is a pretty opaque industry to me. I don't, you know, I don't understand it super well. Uh, but the pricing model he was offering was basically $25 a month. Appraisers could use this app to help uh, manage the whole appraisal process, uh, which is yeah. would be a lot cheaper for them than what they pay right now or how they even do it right now. The one stat that he threw out that I found very interesting was that something like 12,000 appraisals a week nationwide get rejected due to compliance issues. So like the appraiser was not able to confirm they were on site and stuff like that. So I think part of what the app does is uh, from what I could tell was like some sort of a check-in process. And then it's just a way to a keep this information, like transfer this information between the lender and the, uh, 
appraiser, but also give the uh, homeowner some insight into the process, which isn't really possible under the current system. Yeah, really cool idea. And it sounds like it's being built by someone who understands that industry really well. And a lot of characters like that definitely fit the mold of successful successful founders, like someone who understands an opaque industry really well, sees a problem and then uh, executes on it. So it sounded like he had put a hundred grand of his own capital into the project. And then he was raising 150 from friends and family. And then he was looking for an outside investment of another hundred or so. Yeah. To get the MVP off the ground, I believe. Yeah. What's your guess? Like the majority of those costs do you think were just uh, like software development costs or what else do you think he would be spending on? I mean, it's, I can just speculate on this one. So assuming that, you know, he's been in the industry for a long time, he's got a ton of contacts he knows what the product needs to look like. I assume he's doing most of the product and biz dev himself. Yep. And so those numbers sound about right for what he'd need to actually get this built, put together sales marketing material and like essentially build it and do some of the taking it to market piece because he can probably do a lot of the rest inexpensively on his own. Yep. So yeah, I would say design development and maybe some sales marketing yep. work. So the next project that, that we saw was uh, Wonder 8. And they call themselves a collaboration tool for business insurance and risk. And the guy doing the presentation, he was uh, was the CEO there, Peter McDonald. He was really polished. Really polished. I mean, I I hope this thing's People asked him all kinds of questions on the fly. And he was like, yeah, I mean, he was just really had everything down. Yeah. He knew the industry really well. He knew his product really well. And just broadly speaking, the product was this tool that helps, uh, I think he said, these were his words, that gets the insurance uh, industry out of like the Stone Age. Yeah. One of the problems that he's seen with the insurance industry is that there's a ton of p- actual physical paperwork that still needs to be filled out. And his app, and it actually looked like a Rails app with a bootstrap. I don't know. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it you know, it had very much of that MVP feel yeah. to it. It was, uh, it's basically like, it was a bunch of forms and it takes care of a lot of the paperwork that you'd otherwise have to fill out Yeah, doing insurance. The one part that wasn't clear to me was like, who is the person that's using this? Is this a broker or somebody else? Yeah. So, uh, I can speak to that. So basically his target market was uh, medium businesses. It's like 50 to 500 employees and also sm- like brokerages that are on the smaller side. So they don't have a risk manager on staff. And so the idea was that for these companies, it takes them uh, on average 20 weeks to buy insurance. So essentially the moment they buy insurance, after six, seven months go by, it's time for them to start buying insurance again. And a lot of this process is, again, like you said, pen and paper, and then stuff gets uh, either lost or, you know, there's like not digitized or it gets manually digitized, which is time consuming. And the other thing that he uh, brought up was you can decrease your cost by like you can improve your insurability by showing that you've done things to uh, decrease your risk. And so a big piece of this was uh, between the company and the broker. This was essentially a ledger where you could track all of the things like a your actual history of uh, claims and what assets you have and what condition they're in and steps you've taken towards safety. So it built your insurability profile so that if you're taking steps towards, uh, you know, decreasing your risks, you should be able to get better rates in the future. And it's a way for 
it to be easier for the both the user, but especially the broker to manage all that information when they're, I guess, contacting underwriters on your behalf. Yep. Like, I don't know much about the insurance space, but I've heard this complaint a lot about how backwards and uh, I shouldn't say backwards, but let's say how conservative like insurance companies are. It's very difficult yeah. for them to to get them to adopt anything new. Yeah. I was just surprised about the whole paper thing. Like I would think that that at least would be a little more like web-based or web form-based than it actually is. Yeah. I, I, I've seen the gamut. Like I recently, you know, for consumer insurance, I bought health insurance using Oscar and that was pretty smooth, but they're like a startup on the flip side. Like sometimes when I shop for car insurance, it really is like some guys, like I'll get back to you in a few days and then they like email you a quote like multiple days later. So I think there's definitely room for improvement there. Yeah. Our experience with getting signed up for uh, business insurance with his, his Cox, it was basically, I contacted, I contacted them. Like I had to go to their website. I filled out a form and then I got an email that said, okay, somebody is going to be in touch. And then within the same day, like it didn't take, I don't don't remember it taking a long time. Within the same day, someone called back. And they said, hey, we saw that you are looking for business insurance. They just needed some information like, where is your office? Do you ever work away from that office? What do you need insured? Like, do you need your equipment insured? Just a bunch of just general questions like that. And then they just gave me a quote, yeah. a quote like on the spot. So yeah. that wasn't that bad. But you can see with like 250 employees in different right. roles and multiple offices. And yep. especially we have equipment or people doing jobs where like they have a job site that's maybe more dangerous than an office, it can quickly get complicated. Yeah, I hope his presentation is on YouTube because it was just so polished, like you said earlier. It was really, really good. Next one, so Orbitcoin, uh, founder Mike Leodov. So this was called a decentralized P2P lending platform and credit network. I think this is similar to that project that you really like, Celsius. Is that... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. uh, Alex Mashinsky. Like, I think he holds the patent for VoIP. Yeah. Or that's what he says. Yeah. And yeah, Celsius. So it's, it's, a, it's the, essentially the, the exact same idea. Can either be a lender or a borrower within this platform, and it's all smart contract based. And essentially, if you're a lender, you collect some interest rate, a borrower, you pay some interest rate, and the system takes an administrative fee. Yep. For processing all this and managing the risk slash credit. Yeah. And did, did he say seven to 10%? Was the interest rate like on average? I think so. Yeah. I, he So he said 7 to 10% initially as like a fee and I didn't understand that. And then he said it was 7 to 10% was the interest rate when someone asked a question about it in the Q&A. Yeah. So it's a little weird to me that it would both be 7 to 10%. So um, yeah. I'm not sure. It just felt very early stage. Yeah. I don't know that they have like any, I did not get the impression that there's any volume of lenders or borrowers. Yeah. Or capital, and the other point they made is, I think, for launch at least, or for their alpha or beta or what have you, you have to put up collateral for your loan. So it's it's not like a pure like unsecured loan the way Celsius is, where it's like credit based and like social credit based, where people can vouch for you, or like your traditional you know consumer lending services like Prosper that charge like basically credit card interest rates. Yeah. So or Bitcoin, I guess they were. It sounded like they're doing an ICO. I mean, they had like a soft cap and a hard cap and they had all the deep yeah, details yeah, on the they're, slide. They're going to be doing their 
token sale to late, I think October and December are their two like deadlines. Yeah. I mean, I think the space itself is super interesting. Like we saw a bunch of these P2P lending, for, like completely non-crypto related P2P lending companies take off. What are their names again? There was like, there are like two or three that are huge. Oh, there's, I can name them. Uh, there's SoFi, there's Prosper, right. there's Lending Tree. Yep. Uh, Goldman Sachs has one called Marcus. And then there's a whole bunch of like second tier ones. Yep. And so what do you think the crypto layer adds on top of that? So I think the claim is that a big piece of it is credit. So, you know, all of these other lending agencies, basically they use your credit score, your income and your like, it's like a pretty standard loan. Whereas the idea with like the goal with a network like Celsius is I think in the early stages, they pull in credit scores because it is a decent foundation to start with. But the idea is that your credit will exist within the system. So as you borrow and pay back, you'll just build credit within the system. So it needs less external sources to build your profile. Mm-hmm. And I think the other idea is that you can probably wipe out a lot of the administrative costs if it's you know smart contract based. Like if if issuers are just parking or not issuers, but uh, you know people with money are parking money on there, and they know that they're going to get a rate of return, and the system has a pretty good way of assessing like uh, creditworthiness, it should become pretty automated, and you can probably take out a lot of the administrative cost, and maybe do a better job of lending within your network than just using a credit score. Yep. Um, there are a couple like funny things that he said around, uh, there are a few people asking about like the regulatory. Actually, we got, a, yeah, we got like, was, a lot of questions during this one. There were a lot of questions. I was frankly unimpressed with his responses to the regulatory stuff. I think it was a bit hand wavy of like, I think he said like the SEC hasn't really figured it out, so they're not that strict or something along those lines. Yeah. It was it was really just waving it off as oh they haven't said too much, so it's not a big deal. Right. Uh, when the reality is like if you're gonna be borrowing and lending money to people, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff you need to be very knowledgeable about yeah. regulation wise, yeah. and just like the history of these businesses too. And so I think I was unimp- like you know how some crypto businesses seem a little like they have the blinders on to the other aspects of their industry. Yeah. I got a bit of that impression, yeah. but hopefully they will prove me wrong. Yeah. There's a lot of these too. There's Celsius, there's like Bloom, there's these guys, there's Salt. I mean, no, Salt isn't P2P, is it? I'm not sure. Uh, Salt is collateralized, right? So it's a little different. Yeah, yeah, right. I guess these guys are collateralized, but that's just a way to get going because I think until they figure out their thing. But I think the goal for some of these is to actually be like unsecured lending systems and some of those other ones are ways really so people can just free up cash um, without giving up their Bitcoin. Yeah. So there's a lot of these and it's pretty, I think it's pretty clear that there will be um, some kind of leader in the P2P lending space for crypto. Yeah. But to your earlier point about like each of these being distinct networks, like I wonder if there will be some kind of like balkanization of uh, P2P lending networks where there's like different groups of different people can create their own lending networks. I am... Confident that this is going to be a space that's going to have a ton of drama for a number of reasons. One, there's going to be a lot of demand on both sides because uh, P2P lending, you can get pretty good interest rates as a lender. If you look at what some of these things pay as a borrower, we've seen from the traditional channels that there is a massive amount of demand. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at 
the, even like what's been going on with non-crypto P2P lending companies, there's been quite a bit of drama in uh, China recently. So there's there's a huge surge in P2P lending companies out there. And I think some of them basically got a, not a green light, but like they were s- softly endorsed by the government and then they did a bad job of assessing risk. And so a lot of uh, lenders were losing money. And it, there's been a lot of drama in this space in general. And I think adding the element of like, okay, we're going to now do it within smart contract systems and using novel ways of assigning credit worthiness, I think just going to add another layer of uh, of volatility. Yep. Oh, I, I was just, uh, I just pulled up the peer-to-peer lending page in Wikipedia because I was really curious yeah. what some of the past failures have been. So, okay. Oh, there's mad oh drama. this is hilarious. I'm just going to read some of these because it's funny. In 2011, Quackle, a UK peer-to-peer lender founded in 2010, closed down with a nearly 100% default rate after attempting to measure a borrower's credit worthiness according to a group score. Similar to the feedback scores on eBay, the model failed to encourage repayment. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. Uh, many more peer-to-peer companies have also set up in the UK. At one stage, there were over 100 individual platforms applying for authorization, although many now have withdrawn their applications. Yeah, pretty interesting. I think it's also just philosophically like a natural outgrowth of both globalization and crypto. Like if we're able to, I remember on the first podcast, we were talking about like how a farmer in India could put up a wallet if they wanted to receive funds in order to improve their farm or grow their farm. Along those lines, like someone else somewhere across the world is open to taking a loan out from someone else, like outside of the purview of a bank, they should be able to. And I think the biggest issue, and we've talked about this, is going to be like trust in Given the amount of drama that there has been in P2P uh, lending, it'll be interesting to see like who are going to be the winners and what like metrics are going to be related to those winners. Like how how yeah. trustworthy, like what can we ascribe when we want to ascribe trust to a person? Like what are the metrics that we can we can ascribe? Yeah. So I have a couple of questions in that in that vein. So let's say you have some amount of capital that you want to put up in P2P lending. A, what would be the criteria by which you would consider it like safe to put that capital up? Two, what sort of like a premium on your return do you need? Like what sort of return do you need to see compared to like other opportunities? And then three, what would be your concerns over regular P2P versus crypto? Okay, so the first Question. And by the time I answer this one, I'll probably forget the other two, but I'll just answer them in order. But uh, the first one, uh, I think this is going to vary from person to person, um, how much they're willing to put up and, you know, how much they're willing to lend and what interest rates they want to lend at. There's a lot of people out there who will be like, I don't know who the person is. I don't know at all. And it's like a kind of uh, unknown. It's an unknown space. So I want like 20% interest, right? I don't, I don't want to be like that kind of person. I would be willing to lend at a low interest rate if the projects are interesting. Like, you know, say you have like a thousand dollars of capital you want to allocate to a few different projects, particularly like a few, like a thousand dollars you want to allocate as loans to people and you want to do uh, like 
say ten a hundred dollar loans or something like that. Okay. Each individual like hundred dollar loan isn't that much, and I would probably just personally speaking, I would prefer to find someone like the farmer in India who needs the capital to uh, build out X, Y, and Z than necessarily like someone who's trying to raise capital to start a real estate fund that's going to invest or something like that. I just, I'm not super interested in that, but I do really like the idea of P2P with respect to being able to help individual people at like a reasonable interest rate for both parties, if that makes sense. Hmm. So I don't know what, like, I think that's going to vary a lot from investor to investor. Yeah. And if if you were doing it purely for profit and not like to help people somehow, how would that change your, like how you would size that and choose what your return needs to be? Yeah. For it to make sense. I probably relate it to what stock market return, my guess, if I was going to do it that way or if someone was going to do it that way, maybe they're going to look at what stock market returns are, what crypto market returns are, what traditional treasury returns are, and then come up with like the kind of return they want. Like say they want the 7% or 10%, right? Yeah. So is like, I guess my question is, is it at a premium to the stock market? So let's say you feel confident you're going to be getting 7% returns. If you go P2P, do you need to be at 10% or are you okay with 5%? Like I, that's sort of what I was getting at. Okay. I'd probably want 10%. Okay. So you, you, there's a premium for yeah. you. Yeah. For the P2P factor. Yeah. Okay. And then any, what about crypto versus like so traditional? So with crypto versus traditional, um, I think the questions around, well, okay, with traditional, I think it's difficult to be able to like lend to that farmer who lives in a different country, right? That like a lot of these P2P platforms are actually country uh, specific. So yeah, there's nonprofits that let you do like there's the microfinance nonprofits, but you're not really making like that's not a profit motive at that point. So with crypto, you do have the ability to do that. What I would probably want is if I want to invest in someone I don't know much about apart from like their profile, I want some kind of metrics about that person. Like maybe I'm just not creative enough, but maybe it just comes down to like some rudimentary like credit worthiness type of metrics per person. Like they've taken loans out in the past. They've paid them off. They haven't missed a loan payment. Maybe you want to look at like, do they have a family that they need to support and stuff like that? Yeah. I know for like microfinance, one of the ways you can look at it is rather than because they're the ones on the ground that know all of the people they're lending to and the dynamics of their specific markets. So you can look at the default rates and that sort of thing of the like actual group on the ground that's dealing with that region or that industry because it's much harder to assess a single person remotely. Yep. And I know Upstart had a thing a while ago where like essentially you were lending money directly to someone and you would look at like their big thing was like, what did you study and what do you, what's your career goals and stuff like that. You were essentially investing in people that would likely to be successful, I guess, which is an interesting approach. This is definitely a really interesting topic and it could easily take up a whole bunch of podcast episodes. We should have some guests on around this too, who are building some crypto related P2P stuff. But yeah. And finally the last, uh, we were the last company to uh, present at the meetup. So for those of you who are listening for the first time, we're basically building a real-time streaming cryptocurrency market intelligence platform for investors and traders. So if you are a trader or investor and you want to keep up on the crypto space, you'd use our product to keep track of it pretty closely. We track all kinds of things. We track news, of course. We track 
the news that teams are publishing, GitHub commits that teams are committing. We highlight a lot of the blockchain activity, lightning network activity, uh, how tied up the Ethereum network is and by what contracts. So um, I think we're at like 130 sources right now and they're all pretty unique and distinct and we're adding them pretty regularly. So uh, we were excited to present at this place because it was basically our first time out with a whole bunch of, I mean, it was packed. It was probably about 200 people there. Yeah. And we were able to walk through the platform with them, which was which was really cool. You got some got a lot of good questions too. Yeah, yeah, well, well. yeah. I, th- I remember one of the questions that we got was so for those of you listening listening, just you know, come to the site quantlayer.com and you can see examples of what the app looks like. But basically, imagine like a Bloomberg or Reuters type of feed, where at the top of the feed gets updated every time there's a new alert or an important piece of news. And I think someone had asked us, oh, are you going to be doing like ratings for coins and tokens, kind of like a Moody's or S&P? And I thought that was an interesting question. I know what my response is, but what is your take on like if we did something like that? Yeah, so I think we've discussed this before because my thought was that there are def- like clear positive and negative signals that we could report with reasonable confidence. Like, especially if we're doing some human analysis. So programmatically, you, you want to be really careful that you're not giving too many false positives or negatives on like anything that's potentially market moving. But there's other stuff that like I go in there and I look at, or you look at the GitHub and it, this is like a clear problem. And you would want to alert that like, you know, the positive, negative, or it sort of diminishes the quality of that given project in your mind. But I think the risk that you mentioned about, uh, it's the difference between like having a stock screener and giving stock recommendations. Yep. Legally, I think one is much more fraught with like regulatory yep. risk. And uh, given that we can add a lot of value early on by just delivering like well curated information, in my view, the part where we add our like editorial piece to that comes later on once we've had a lot more data and a lot more time to refine our recommendation process. Yes. So what, one thing we do is we highlight things that are important and are yeah, our in rub- an objective manner. Yeah. In a rubric is basically if somebody, if a coin puts out news, that is That's important. Particularly important for that coin yeah. versus like an, judging whether an article by a third party is good or not. Yeah. Like if it's official news, whether it's admins on Telegram or a coin blog, like we will highlight that as especially important. Yeah. And that's a objective recommendation. Right. And it's not a recommendation in the sense of a buy or sell. It's literally, you better read this because the coin team put it out and it's up to you to decide right. whether or not it's uh, is good or bad or neutral. Yeah. And so I think for us for, yeah, now, like that's the phase we want to stick to is recommending the quality of the information as opposed to the quality of the like product or the price movement. Yeah. And it's funny because when I traded full-time, the services that I used, I didn't really listen too much to whether they were telling me to buy or sell. In fact, like I used Street Account and Trade the News and Bloomberg, of course, and they didn't say you should buy or sell X. It was really just a feed of news. And then we would make the decision on whether or not it was important. So we're kind of going for something similar here. It's kind of funny that people want recommendations i think it depends probably somewhat on the level of like 
sophistication or like professional investors probably want information because they have their own strategy and they're probably less likely to just trust a recommendation without all of the research backing it. Whereas I think more casual investors are probably more likely to trust an external source that has maybe done more work than them and are looking for answers. So maybe it has a lot to do with the profile of who the user is. And I think we're really catering towards those professional traders who are, you know, going to be making recommendations internally based on a number of sources. So they could use our product and they can also use a bunch of other products too. It's fine. Yeah. Which is something that also always comes up. People are like, why would I use this over that? Or, you know, A over B. And and what you always say is like, you use multiple products because the areas they don't overlap still are enough value to inform some trades. Yeah. If you don't have a research budget, I totally understand why you would need to pick like the best possible tool for you. But funds often have very large research budgets. And I mean, like I said, we used Bloomberg, Street Account, FactSet, Capital IQ, Trade the News. And some of these all share similar functionality, but then there's a couple areas that they happen to be better at each. Trade the News was a real-time streaming platform. Street Account had amazing email alerts. Bloomberg, you just had to have. Uh, FactSet was great on the fundamental research side. So everyone, you know, all of them have their, their special features that we'd need. So... Another question that we got, um, I guess we kind of answered like, you know, how is this different from other crypto news tools out there? Yeah. Well, so one is it's not purely a crypto news tool. So a lot of what we have seen out there that does alerting is either purely a news aggregator or a news aggregator with some editorial piece. Uh, While we do have a lot of news sources, we are doing a lot of like that on-chain analysis and the pulling in from Telegram. And, uh, you know, in our pipeline is more derivative indicators on some of that information. So news is just a small piece of the types of things we're going to be pulling. Yeah. And then the second piece is the overlap that we talked about. And I think one of the points that I made during our presentation, and I think it hit home, was that, you know, a lot of this industry right now is focused on technical analysis. And as the industry matures in the next few years, it's going to start moving more towards on the fundamental side. And... Fundamentals here are basically like on-chain related analytics and claims that we can make and code related claims that we can make. I think those are like a pretty solid combo of what constitutes fundamental analysis. So, you know, as we include more of that stuff and we're able to alert real time on changes to those fundamental things, I think that'll be really, really valuable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, another question someone asked was during the presentation, can you use fundamental analysis to value Bitcoin or is it mostly directional? Like the price is going to go up, down. That's yeah, directional meaning like, yeah, exactly. Is it going to go up or up a lot? Is it going to move like 10% or 50% versus down? Versus like, should Bitcoin be $5,300 or $10,000? Right. Yeah, based on all the metrics is what is the dollar value of Bitcoin? So that one is very hard. Like we can't even use, we have years of gold and oil data and we can't say like oh gold's value is x like 1800 per ounce or 1300 per ounce maybe we can't say a barrel of oil is worth you know whatever it's worth because these things change based on supply and demand there again there are no earnings or cash flows associated with them uh, you can value an oil company or a gold gold company a little easier than the underlying uh, commodity 
So I think similarly, it's going to be difficult to say like, oh, Bitcoin should be worth 5,300. But if more Bitcoin are getting locked up on the Lightning Network and the Lightning Network is shooting up for in capacity, you should be able to take a directional bet. You know, set your stops, but you can take a directional bet that the price is going to go up. We've seen that in the platform, right? We track the Lightning Network updates yeah. and we've <laughs> we've seen rising capacity followed by a rising price and we've seen falling capacity followed by falling price. Again, it's not one-to-one. I'm not guaranteeing it at all. I'm just saying that there's certainly a relationship. And as more on-chain type of analyses come into the picture, we'll see the industry mature a bit and prices will probably reflect that kind of stuff. Yeah. One other section that we thought would be fun to do is uh, we've just been compiling a list of questions that you guys and other listeners have been asking us. So I thought we could just kind of go through them here. So one of the topics is just related to market. And I think this is a good one for you, Vikram. What are some of the headwinds against crypto right now? Okay. So it's August. uh, We're recording this on August 15th. It'll be out, you know, this coming Monday. In the last couple of days, there have been like pretty significant drawdowns in crypto. Bitcoin has not, you know, it's fallen too, but Ethereum has gotten uh, demolished. Um, Ethereum's gotten demolished. A bunch of the ICOs have gotten demolished. And I always have a tough time saying, pointing to like one particular thing or another particular thing. Everyone has their own kind of narrative that they end up creating around any kind of volatility and when things move well and when things don't. So I don't want to fall into that trap. But the kind of stuff that I could point to is say that we had a huge move in Ethereum last year. We had a ton of ICOs list using the Ethereum chain. There's a lot of skepticism now around Ethereum being scalable. Like we see on our platform, we see we see significant percentage of Ethereum uh, network being used, like 30, 40% sometimes. Uh, like a week ago, we saw a, to- a greater than 50% of the network being used by two contracts, one of which was like a like a spam contract and a a Ponzi type of contract. And that's concerning around issues of scalability. So there's that issue. Uh, There's the issue of like ICOs being viewed poorly. And you also had a huge move in the past. So like if things move, you know, 5X, 10X, a 30, 40, 50% drawdown over like a extended period is not surprising. It's just, that's how the world works. Like things never just go straight up. So I think we have a bit of that going on. And we also have like, if people are unhappy about their crypto hedge funds returns and they have an opportunity to pull money out of the fund, the fund has to cover that, right? So say like, I bet a lot of these crypto funds aren't super sophisticated and if they didn't set up like one year type of uh, lockups and they don't have lockups or they have like one quarter lockups or a few months, like a month lockup, then when people get spooked by the market, they're going to start pulling money from their funds too. And the funds will have to sell. So that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of like a forced selling. And then another type of forced selling is if these ICOs. So like we talked about this on a couple of prior podcasts, but you know, say you're an ICO and you raised uh, $3 million when ETH was like 1500. And if you didn't cash any of that out, the amount that you raised is if it's around 300 now is, is way less. So you have like a ton 
you have much less working capital to even like higher development, higher marketing, things like that. So if ETH price doesn't recover and a lot of these ICOs never actually cashed out to be able to spend, then these projects are just going to die. So if those projects are going to get... And they'll probably sell off a lot of what they have left. exactly. So we have a bunch of like negative stuff going on with respect to capital. As far as technological development, I think, you know, Lightning Network stuff strong as ever. Capacity continues to get locked up. We'll see towards the end of the year how that how that ends up playing out. But I think that's kind of like what's going on. Another question we got was, how long does it take to add a new source to your platform? So I don't know if this person meant like how many days or like how long does it take to come up with a new source or what? But we can probably talk to that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it there's a, a spectrum depending on how complex the sources. So there's certain classes of sources. And if it's one we've done before, the honest answer is like, we can have it working in less than an hour and up in production in not much longer than that. And in fact, like some days we launch multiple sources in a given day. On the uh, other extreme, you might have something that requires a lot, like it's the first of its type. And also there's a lot of like underlying complexity. You're not just like pulling in data and doing some analysis. You might have to, you know, be interacting with a node or saving some data, running some calculations against new information from the node and old data. And so something like that could take, you know, multiple days of dev time to get up and running and uh, stable in production. But in general, the nice thing about our setup is that it's, it's pretty plug and play. So you can develop these sources relatively independently, plug them into the overall system and, now we're generating alerts, which is how we've been able to get to 130 sources with the two of us and generate over, I think, a quarter million alerts now. Yeah. So if you have any other alert ideas, please, please let us know. We have like a roadmap of stuff that we want to add. I think that all of it's going to be valuable to investors, but it's always cool to hear from customers what they want to, what they want added to. Yeah. And I guess more general, like kind of software dev consulting type of questions. Again, I don't know how specific they want to get about this, but like one question we got was, oh, I'm a web developer. How is crypto development different from web development? So this one, you know, I'm going to scope it to people talking about like smart contract work. Because like yeah. when you say crypto development, you mean like... Protocol layer? Yeah, doing like the low level stuff, uh, doing the distributed stuff, doing the tooling around it. Like that's a whole different thing. So if we're, if we're talking about the more common jump, I guess, of like a web developer that wants to get into Solidity and smart contract development, you know, I think that's probably a more common and reasonable transition. And I think the biggest difference is that in, especially in modern agile uh, web development, you ship something that works, you find bugs, you fix it, you improve on it. And Smart contracts, once they go to production, you simply don't have the same sort of leeway for the quantity and quality of mistakes that you can get away with and are probably expected to make in web development. You know, I like to liken it. It's much more like building a bridge than building a website in that with a website, you can just constantly be changing it. Whereas with a bridge, like there's stuff you can do after the bridge is built, but you kind of need to get the pieces of it that have to absolutely work like right the first time. Yep. And this is definitely a topic I want to talk more about in terms of, you know, there's tremendous security considerations when it comes to smart contracts because 
like I said, like there's critical bugs will ruin your whole system if they ship in your smart contract. Secondly, you have completely different resource limitations. You know, because your smart contract execution is is costing you money, essentially, you know, you're using gas for these contracts. You have to, it's not that you don't have to optimize in web development, but you have a little more leeway to ship something and then deal with scaling as it ramps up. Whereas with your smart contracts, again, you really, really need to think about uh, performance. Consequences. Issues. Yeah, and consequences uh, upfront. So yeah. I think it's just, you just have a lot shorter of a leash on security stuff and performance stuff than yeah. you would in, in web development. We should have a, like a whole podcast on like edge case discovery or like a section on it at least. But I think that yeah. stuff is really relevant to what you're talking about. Okay. Another question that you guys asked. So what are common mistakes you see founder slash management teams make when working on their MVP? Okay. So I, you have very strong views on this. I have very strong views. I have so many stories, but a big one that I see just, and it's not even MVPs, it's just software in general, but particularly MVPs is like, everyone wants to put out something great, obviously, or maybe not everyone, but people in general want to put out something great. Yeah. And the things that you interact with day to day are actually like some of the most polished and like, you know, your like your Facebook products and your Google products and like Netflix, like these are big tech companies that invest a tremendous amount of money in engineering talent into polish and UX. And so people's bar for how fast things should be, what the UX should be like, what the level of design is actually pretty high relative to what most software is. Yep. And so people tend to, you know, there's people talk about scope creep, but what we see a lot of the time is people want like the best version of the thing to launch as their MVP rather than like what it should be, which is testing a hypothesis most of the time. I'm sure there's, you know, exceptions where you have a market already lined up or you understand the industry, but generally speaking with an MVP, you're testing some hypothesis like, oh, users don't have the ability to do uh, activity X via Y. And so I want to test if that can make money. And generally you can, you know, let's say that being able to do activity X via Y. So Y being like text, I want to be able to buy cars via text. I'm just going to make this up as an example. Like what you don't want to do is go out and try and invent a car marketplace from scratch, invent your own like text in like, you know, telecom, like text processing system from scratch and build all of this stuff. You essentially want to test that like people want to do that function and just leverage a lot of existing tools or even APIs or services to fill in a lot of that backend functionality that you can later build out when you've actually proven your hypothesis. And what we find a lot of times people just want to build everything because there's always some trade-off when you're buying an external service or doing things the simpler way. And people see the trade-off as way much bigger of a deal than it is to prove their hypothesis most of the time. And so what ends up happening is things take a lot longer. They go, they cost a lot more money. And you compound that with the fact that things by nature tend to have a risk of scope creep um, and going over budget. Now you're compounding that with a much more complicated project. And that's where you see stuff where someone could have tested their MVP for $200,000 and all of a sudden they're approached a million dollars and not really added much value to it. Yeah. And also without getting it in front of potential customers. This whole time, like there's backend pieces being built out that already exist 
you know, 90% of that functionality exists for a hundred bucks a month. And you're spending hundreds of thousand dollars building all that out when that's not even related to your hypothesis. It's just something that needs to exist to support your tool. Yeah. And then the other big one is just communication related, like communication between developers and project managers, project managers and clients, devs and clients. But the big one I see is that people go off and do what a client says rather than figure out what a client needs, communicate that to them. And like, you know, both parties obviously should agree that that's what needs to be done and then do that. You know, someone might say, I mean, using this example, if I want to be able to buy cars via text, the client might say like, oh, you know, a friend of mine told me that like we can contact AT&T and they'll provision a, a server for us and we'll pay 50 grand and we'll be able to like use that thing to like take in inbound and outbound texts. And that's a great scenario to go to the client and be like, well, your actual hypothesis is just seeing if people want to text to buy cars and all of the rest of this stuff is just fluff that needs to exist. So why don't we, for your first hundred users, just hook up to Twilio, spend a couple hundred bucks on Twilio. And if it turns out that this thing has some massive scale, then we can go ahead and do the deal with AT&T. Yep. And so, you know, this is a completely contrived example, but the idea is just that a lot of times clients will come with ideas and the ideas are, you know, adjacent to what their actual need is. And it's just a matter of commu- like communicating to them. Like, I hear what you're saying. I think this is what you actually need. And here's another way to accomplish this goal for like cheaper, faster, better. Yeah. Read between the lines. Yeah. Just because they're saying one thing, you know, try to, I guess the message is mostly for like, people who are interacting directly with, with the client, but you're, you're totally on point is that, you know, just if you put yourself in their shoes, you know, there's some nervousness, trepidation around the product they're building. They want it to look great. They want it to perform great, but they're not hundred percent sure the market actually exists yet. I mean, just think about all those things. Yeah. A I lot think of times it just they, puts it in perspective. They may not trust you because if you're, you know, consulting basis, like, They've put a lot of time and money into this thing. They don't trust you. So they're being very proactive, which is a good thing. But often giving feedback and like nudging people the right way is a great way to build trust and credibility. Yeah. Assuming your suggestions are good. If you have terrible yeah. suggestions, I can help you. Yeah, we can't help you there. <laughs> um, like if the worry is that the client is going to fire you, just they try should. it. I mean, like if you have a client that is absolutely not interested in listening to your feedback if it's constructive and to the point where they'll just fire you over it. Like you don't want them. I think that's a bullet dodge on both for both parties. Yeah. Any reasonable business person is going to take reasonable advice at the right time. Right. Like if you have someone that's that maniacal without like Like for no reason. Yeah. For no reason without infinitely deep pockets, chances are the project's going to fail. So you're not, you're not losing much by not participating in the failure. Cool. I think we covered a bunch of stuff. Yeah. That was a solid recap and then Q&A. All right. Sounds good. Uh, We'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, everyone. This is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. Or email me at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at quantlayer.com. I will write back. Thanks. Thanks.